This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now I only sponsor products that I use every day and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio. And I know you will too. So if you're interested Head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This week, we have a clash of podcast hosts, I guess, in one way. Uh, I've got Ben Claremont on the show. Ben is a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital, but he's also the podcast host of the Compounders podcast, which if you haven't listened to that, uh, you need to. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and it's Ben just gives uh, great interviews with founders and CEOs of public companies and dives into their business and gives you kind of a firsthand view of what investors should and 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 do ask in terms of questions about management. Uh, very, very thoughtful and insightful. So Ben, I'm going to start off with an easy question. Uh, which is who is the most impressive CEO that you've ever interviewed? 
Uh, I love that that's the easy question. Well, <laughs> um, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, and thank you for that, that kind of introduction. Um, you know, the podcast has been a lot of fun and I've learned a lot so far from it. Um, so I would say it's really hard for me to choose my favorite um, episode. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like choosing between your children. Um, but so I'm going to go down a route that's, you know, maybe, you know, a, a nuanced answer is that um, I would highlight the two youngest CEOs um, both of whom I believe are younger than I am. Um, and so I'm, I'm 41. Um, and I believe that uh, Ben Glicklich from Element Solutions and Joe Levin from IAC are both younger than I am. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, why were they impressive? So two, two very you know, different guys with some similarities, I think, in terms of their personality traits. So with Ben, I mean, I just found his comments on how he's building a culture at Element Solutions to be really compelling. So um, Element Solutions, Tigger, by the way, um, has these five C's that are the main elements of the culture. And the way he articulated the challenge, commit, collaborate, choose, and care aspects of their culture was just like so profound. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself like, I, there's no way I could come up with it. There's just, yeah. he has such a level of like empathy and of like people and culture that I thought, um, you know, I, it really stood out to me. And so, and it's interesting because he inherited a culture at Element Solutions. Um, if anyone's familiar with this company, it was formerly Platform Specialty Products, which was an Ackman SPAC. I mean, it was just a, you know, it, it was a, it was an interesting situation um, where the company became over levered and they had to divest some assets. And so, the company was was not in good shape in, in terms of its finances, you know, when he right. when, when he started, you know, when he was really take, he started to take the job in. and then the culture, I don't think was particularly healthy. So, um, you know, since then, in, in you know, many ways, Ben has really built a, a high performing organization that's able to continue to innovate for customers and acquire very sen sensibly. Um, and so I do think that cultures can be a competitive advantage. And that and that's why at Co Street we focus so much, and and, and on the podcast exactly, or precisely, is, is why we focus so much on culture and people. Um, and so that, in terms of culture building, it felt like someone who'd been in the business and, and running companies for like thirty years, and you know he's like thirty eight years old. Um, and and clearly there was something special about Ben. Uh, given that Martin Franklin, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Martin Franklin is a guy who built and sold Jardin um, and is also the, the chairman of Element Solutions. He had enough faith in Ben to, to have him be the CEO despite his age. So, you know, so again, with Ben Glicklich, it was really about, I mean, I think he's a good operational CEO too, but it was really his comments about culture. And the, the other one is Joey Levin um, from IAC. Um, you, know, Joe, you know, I think the, the interview we did with Joey has been, you know, probably the most popular one we've ever done. Um, and, and what I think is special about Joey was, he, you know, IAC does a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? They're the largest shareholder in Angie, right? They were the largest shareholder in Match and Vimeo, and they spun those companies off. Um, they've got a large investment in MGM. And, um, you know, he just, there's a lot of different, and plus there's a bunch of businesses that are, you know, kind of incubating within the I, IAC umbrella that mm -hmm. um, Joey's, in, you know, involved in. Um, and, and obviously they, they rely on their managers a whole lot, but he's involved in all of these. And so he's, I, I was really impressed with his depth of knowledge influences in the nuances of their many businesses. Um, I, I mean, I was obviously the fact that Barry Diller, who's also a very famous 
company builder had enough trust in Joey to allow him to be the CEO of IEC when I think he was in his mid thirties. So that's quite impressive. And, and again, when I'm thinking about Ben and, and, and Joey, I'm like, what am I doing with my own life? <laughs> if these guys are already running public companies and they're younger than me, I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, I should mention about my own IAC. Um, and honestly, and one of the coolest things about the podcast is, is like that interview I did with Joey was the impetus for me doing more work on IAC. And now we're a shareholder, right? And, and fortunately, for, with ESI, I'd already done a fair amount of work there. And, and, and I knew the company pretty well. But yeah. I think my interactions with Ben in um, you know one-on-one and during the podcast, I've basically cemented that company as, a, as an offer, something I'd like to invest in. Um, and so I actually, last time I talked with Ben, I joked with him that I really wanted him to you know, screw up for a couple of quarters so the stock would go down so I could buy it at a better valuation. Um, because like, I, I really, I felt like I, with, with, especially with those two, two younger guys, I feel like I identified two exceptional CEOs who can be doing it for a long time, who, you know, for the, the, for the podcast is called Compounders, right? Who can continue to compound capital for a long time. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, investing with, with, with Buffett when he was 30, you're gonna have a long runway, right? And so, um, you know, I, I think, all of our interviews had elements that I was able to learn from. And that's, and that's really the most exciting thing and the most you know, enjoyable thing about the, about the podcast. But um, I thought it'd be interesting to, to highlight two people who on paper, you know, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't stand out as like guys, a public company CEO. Right. And, and, and there's something about, um, you know, them that was clearly very special given that two famous capital allocators are willing to back them, you know, in that role. When you find a manager or CEO founder that you just fall in love with for, for lack of a better term, how much easier does it become um, to separate kind of the, the stock price and what it does day to day versus the actual business? Because I think that's one clear advantage of, of, of really knowing a founder, really knowing an owner. And I'm going to get to the downsides of that as well, but let's start with the upsides. It's how much, how much does, does that enable you to dislocate price day-to-day random noise from the underlying business value? So, so at Cove Street, we have three pillars of our investment process and their business value and people. And all three of them are really important. What you're getting to is the, the people aspect, which we focus a lot on. And I'm happy to talk about that process later on, if you'd like. Um, and so each one of those things you know, needs to be aligned and kind of like a, a very you know, good business, great management, good valuation. You want all of those to be aligned in order to be, to be making an investment because we run, a con- we run concentrated portfolios, uh, which means you know, in the strategy that I manage, we have 22 stocks. So that's fairly concentrated. Um, and so... In everything that goes in there should be a quote unquote best idea, right? Yeah. And so to me, that means business value and people all lining up. And so when I have, getting your question, when I've that box that the people side is a strong positive, like without question, high integrity people clearly understand capital allocation, have a nuanced perspective on their businesses, understand what drives value for shareholders. Like when you can check that box, and say, 
I am willing to partner with these people. It makes the rest of the process so much easier, right? Okay, so then, so then there's that. Like, let's just say, all right, so you've you know, BVP, business value people. So let's let's put a circle around the, the P part and say, done. All right, these are people I'd like to invest with. Okay, so then it's about the business, right? You, can, I, I focus a lot on 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 the on the business aspects and on, from both the qualitative and quantitative perspective because. You know, I've learned the hard way that even good managers can run into businesses that that just you know don't aren't compounders, right? They don't they're not getting more valuable every day. And so, you know, I don't, I'm trying to avoid situations in which a great manager takes over a struggling business or even a business with secular you know, headwinds that you know you know you're hoping that they can manage those, but who knows, right? And and I, I'm I'm very focused on finding businesses with internal business momentum, which means that, you know, there's just a secular tailwind of some kind behind them. Um, and so to me, the business and the people come first, right? And so that's why we do a fair amount of work um, when we're underwriting any new investment idea to really understand the business. And that includes expert networks. That includes going, you know, you used to go to a ton of trade shows and things that are kind of like outside of the Wall Street kind of mainstream. Like we're not we're not relying on sell side research here to to determine you know the quality of a business. Um, and so what I really want to do is find a, a group of businesses where I can check the box. Yes, people, yes on people. Then you just have to be patient. Right. Then it's then it's just waiting for the vicissitudes of the market to hand you these businesses trading at more attractive valuations. Right. I'm not the kind of guy who I'm a value investor. Like I started off as a Ben Graham kind of investor. Like I'm never going to say valuation doesn't matter. Like that's those it does. And, and those won't make any sense. Right. The only things you can control as an investor are your process and the price you pay. Mm -hmm. right and then your position size those are the three things that you can really control so for me right there's a balance between being you know so frugal and so cheap that you miss everything right and you know just being so enamored with the business and the people that you're willing to pay whatever price and so if you think about what i'm doing from from a from a high level perspective i'm and because you asked about ease I'm looking for companies for which I can check the box B and P. And then when the valuation falls into your range, you know, it's just an, it's a no brainer, right? You've done the work. Maybe you read the conference call maybe you read the queue to make sure they didn't, you know, disclose any, whatever, like billion dollar liabilities that you didn't know about, but then mm -hmm. it's just easy. Right. And obviously you're making decisions under uncertainty and you can be wrong, yeah. but in terms of like, that is precisely what I'm trying to do is collect as many of those businesses as possible that I follow every quarter or every year and then be able to move if and when, you know, you get what, you know, what I think was just, which, which is what, what is happening now with a lot of companies, but what happens pretty often is these kind of stock specific mini recessions. Yeah. I mean, it's what we're seeing right now. Um, how many episodes have you done of the compounders podcast? Um, what are we at now? Um, so I think we're like 28 or 29 episodes, but not all of those are interviews. I think we've done like 25 or 26 epic, like actual interviews with, uh, either public company CEOs or chairmen, which, which, which has been the, um, uh, which has been the bulk of it. But I also did one with Chris Mayer who wrote the, um, the hundred baggers book. Yep. I, we, we, we moved a little bit off of the, our core because I thought like, Hey, this is a podcast called compounders. Let's, 
let's literally talk to a guy who wrote the book on Compounder. So yeah. um, Chris was great, but uh, you know, we're talking so kind of like mid interviews with public company CEOs. So you've gone, we'll, we'll take the 25 number, 20, 25 interviews. I asked you earlier to name, you know, your most impressive CEO. And, and now I'm going to kind of pull back the onion a little bit more and, 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 and ask if there are any characteristics that some of these more impressive guys have shared um, any kind of mental models that you can lap on and say, Oh, okay. If this next CEO that I'm interviewing has these, these, these things, the odds of him being a better than average operator are high or low. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So one of the things that I found as I was re-listening to a lot, you know, a bunch of the episodes and trying to come up with ways is that um, the CEOs that I thought were most impressive um, have a bias towards action. And that may sound like a bad thing. Like, you know, you're just always tinkering, you're always whipping and trading things. It's more so that when you see something that is not working, right? It's, it's just like selling your losers as an investor, right? Like if something's not working, don't don't load up on a, on on and, and continue to invest in in something where your your thesis is not playing out. So the so the, the CEOs that I thought were really impressive said, you know, if there's anything that I I would change about the way I've done things, I would actually move faster when I saw things not working. So that bias towards action, I think, is is it was a really interesting thread throughout the first two seasons we did. Um, you know, in general, I mean, what I'm looking for. Um, is someone who has kind of thinks with a probabilistic mindset. What do I mean by that? So making decisions under uncertainty is hard. That's what we do as investors. And you're going to make decisions and you're going to inevitably be wrong, right? Um, You know, no one bats a thousand. No one gets every investment right. And so you have to think of, 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 of any decision you're making in a probabilistic framework like, you know, there's X percent chance it goes well, X percent ch- chance it goes in- terribly wrong, and the X percent chance is kind of this is like our base case, yeah. right? And so I, I do think having that that framework as opposed to some binary, like it either works or it doesn't work, or, you know, just like, you know, getting, you can see an organization getting so jazzed up about a deal or some kind of capital allocation thing that you lose perspective on the fact that it could go wrong. Um, and so I, I think I think back to when IAC, in, in kind of like the, the depths of the COVID lockdown was, you know, buying MGM, right? They take a big stake in MGM, right? Like that was a big swing in an enormously uncertain time when this, you know, the casinos were closed, right? But what, like, what was MGM gonna look like over the next three to five years? When, you know, when was the business gonna recover, right? Like that was a, that was a very difficult, you know, on paper decision, but, you know, an organization that has, you know the ability to 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 parse through the the the, the prob, you know the kind of probabilities of success and success and failure, you know, and thinks that way is able to make that kind of contrarian decision under uncertainty. Um, I think you have to understand that things can and will go wrong X percent of the time. If you do have that framework, you're going to invest with a margin of safety, whether that's an acquisition of some kind or whether it's an internal investment of some kind. Right, you're going to you're going to make sure that there is a upside relative to the downside when when you're investing. So um, you know, I think if you if you think about IAC is another you know kind of continue on this thread is like think about how they've been able to incubate all of these companies like Match for example, and then spin them off to shareholders. Right, they, you're making 
it, you know, it wasn't predestined that match was going to be as successful as it was. It required a lot of short-term investment, um, kind of like, you know, just continued company building within IAC before it was able to be, you know, before it was able to be spun off to shareholders. So, you know, willingness to, and getting to back to the bias towards action, willingness to cut off an investment when it's not working, right? Like, yeah. You know, I'm sure IAC has cut any number of things that they never even told us about because they weren't working, right? And so, you know, th those are the those are the kind of things that that really stand out to me. And then, lastly, I think you kind of have to be a contrarian to be a good capital allocator. You know, think about all of the companies that bought a, back a ton of stock in 2019, and then when their stocks were down 40 percent in early 2020, they stopped. Right? That's like the anti-contrarian mindset, right? These, you know, that's. It, and it's really hard from a, from a corporate perspective to, you know, to say, you know, we're going to commit a bunch of capital to buying back our shares in the midst of a global pandemic, right? I understand that it's hard, but I think you want a group of people who understands their business, who, you know, has a contrarian mindset and who's willing to be greedy when others are fearful. And of course, on the, on the flip side, be fearful when others are greedy. How often does charisma or personality trait cloud your judgment on management? And the only like one of the reasons I asked this is uh, I saw, I think today or yesterday, Adam Newman is spinning up another company. And yeah. there was a recent all in podcast um, with Jason Calacanis, I think is his name. And they had Bill Gurley on and um, Bragg or um, shoot the guy who runs altimeter. His name is escaping me. Anyways, uh, they said when, because Benchmark invested in WeWork, and I guess Bill Gurley came away from that interview or from, from that meeting with Adam Newman. It's like, look, like this guy is the greatest salesman I have ever seen. Um, how do you parse out or hedge yourself against maybe an uber charismatic person? I mean, it's a good question. And it's something that, um, you're never going to be a hundred percent right on, right? Yeah. Like you, you, you know, there's that same person could be enormously successful because of those personality traits. Right. And so um, I, I think, I think at Cove Street, we have this inherent skepticism of management and maybe that's just because, you know, I think, you know, it's very different operating within the mega caps and kind of small smid micro. Right. Especially if you come across microcap CEOs, nothing against microcap CEOs and, and my partner, Bobby Kraft, who interviews them <laughs> um, for his podcast, Planet Microcap. Um, but, you know, it's just you, you, you know, that space attracts people who may not be particularly, you know, have a whole lot of integrity and, you know, this pump and dump schemes. And like, so, you know, it, it's not a world that I spent a whole lot of time on anymore, but I do think like starting my career at Cove Street, like, you know, coming having dozens and dozens of meetings with microcap CEOs, it really makes you, you know, have like a slightly skeptical lens. Um, you know, I think I would be in general, not attracted to that charismatic CEO. Um, I, I'm trying to think of any of the, like maybe Mauricio Ramos of, um, of Millicom, which we own and I interviewed, I think Mauricio has that charisma, but I'm trying to think of other ones of our CEOs. And I, I don't, like, I think of Mark Dankberg from Viasat, which was is one of our largest positions. Like, 
very thoughtful, articulate guy. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think it's like he exudes charisma. So, you know, I think, you know, and, and, and maybe that's his bias against that kind of person and, and, and we're maybe we're missing things, but I don't, I don't see us and personally myself, like I feel myself, like if I feel like someone's very salesy, very promotional, we use that term a lot, like at, at coach, you're like, this is a very promotional person. Right. Right. We, we use that, that, that's a, that's a derogatory term in our, in our language. We're, we are trying to, you know, avoid people who are really great salesmen because I'd much rather have a humble, thoughtful, um, articulate person who, who, you know, will talk both sides of his book and say, you know what, this is where we've done really well. And this is where we've done really poorly. And this is where we can get better. Like that's, you know, a super salesy person. I don't think is really going to sell, is going to say that stuff. So I recognize that, you know, in this business, you develop, um, you know, crushes and bromances. And I say bromances, not to be sexist, but it's just a fact that we have far too few female executives um, in, 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 in public markets, right? And, and, and our podcast reflects that, in that we've only had one female CEO on, and, and believe me, I have tried um, to get a diversity of opinion and thought on, on, on the podcast. It's just really hard. Um, you know, so, but I just, I, I think, and so we definitely have those. Uh, and so that the better question is, how do we not love, whether it's charisma or some other way that they talk about their investments in their companies, how do we not fall in love with management? Um, I, I will, there, there is no surefire way, but I will say that we have a checklist that we go through, right? That is in addition to any you know, personal feelings or sentiment about it, that we must check off all of these boxes. And if there are red flags outside of, you know, that personal feeling you have, it's incumbent upon us to take those seriously and not use, and, and look, I would argue that e even more so than what you're saying, it's the closeness to management. Like I've interviewed on the podcast, right? We've been owned the stock for years. We have, you know, consistent access to management. That I think is as much a potential um, the sunk cost bias. bias right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's some, some cost bias, but also familiarity bias, right? Right. You just, you know, you, someone who's close to you and you're familiar with, you're more likely to, prone to like. And so that is harder for us, I think, is, and to make sure that we are being very rational and calculating when it comes to assessing management, even though we've developed these, like, you know, whatever decade long relationships with people. It makes me wonder if thinking about it now, the idea, the idea of charisma or maybe using that as kind of a filter, if that is more of a function of where a company is in its life cycle. Because on one hand, you could argue that you need, you know, need in air quotes, someone more charismatic at the earlier stage to go out there and to really sell the product. But by the time that it comes to your desk, where you're looking at mature established businesses, you don't necessarily need that running gun, you know, break down the doors to sell you the product because it's already established. So it could also just be a, like a selection bias where, you know, given the companies you're looking for, charisma isn't like a very as important quality as say you were looking at an earlier stage, you know, consumer business that really needed to, that really needed to grow and was growing fast. Yeah. I mean, I think size is, you know, especially in, in the world that I, I spend my time on, which is like kind of 3 billion plus in market cap, right. for the most part, these are established businesses with thousands of employees and, you know, operations all over the world, right? And so is it is it helpful to have leadership, you know, have charisma as a leader, be able to motivate people to be able mm -hmm. to, 
you know, uh, to, you know, keep, keep people, keep people going during really tough circumstances and, 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 you know, kind of feel like, have them feel like they're part of something special. Yeah. I think those are all really important things. And, um, but you know, that like super salesy slick, like I'm going to sell you the world kind of person, <laughs> I, that person would not do particularly well in, in sitting in front of me, I don't think. And so, um, you know, if, if anything, you know, I think we invest in projects, pretty understated people in general. Mm -hmm. You have a fantastic framework and really it's nested inside of this huge uh, 58 page slide deck that, um, that you released and I'm going to put in the show notes and it, it's, 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 it's all about this, right? It's all about management, culture, capital allocation, everything we're, we're going to discuss in the podcast. And you have this proprietary management assessment framework. Um, and so I think, you know, now is kind of a great chance to walk us through the inputs into this framework, um, and then how those inputs evolved over time and, and, and what spits out at the end. Yeah, it's a good question. Thank you for asking it. And, you know, I, I would put proprietary in air quotes because, you know, <laughs> it, I, I put that in the presentation as a joke, right? Because like, these are all <laughs> things that are accessible. Advanced to proprietary on web three blockchain enabled technology. Yes, yes, yes. And buzzwords, right? I mean, it's proprietary in the sense that we've accumulated all of these things that we that we do specifically, but you know, all of the information is available to someone else. You just have to go do the work. And yep. so, the, so getting to the wide in the world that I put together that presentation, just to give people some context, is that um, every year I guest lecture um, for Bill Simon's, um, uh, sorry, Applied Value Investing, class within with uh, UCLA undergrads, um, I, my, my topic is corporate governance, management and capital allocation. Um, and so um, this presentation I, was created for that class, but based on the process that we go through. And I find, you know, as opposed to kind of like having it be, you know, just in our head and just kind of the, the, the basic blocking and tackling we do, you know, I decided to codify it, right, both in a presentation that I give to students so that they can steal from it and, and use it, but also in a in a in an actual checklist that I go through with every company, right? And and those are the and those things that you know, like when we're actually doing the process, I need to put a I need to put you know some a check mark in each in a box in each one of those um in each uh, tab or oh, sorry each uh, cell in in the spreadsheet, um, so um. Happy to share that with anyone who's interested. After I did my interview with Edwin Dorsey on, on Sunday brunch, people asked me to share that, and I did. And I'm happy to send it. And, and, and look, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm also. It, it, you asked about how has it evolved and how has it gotten better. Like I, I, I'm adding things frequently, not all the time, but just just recently, I refreshed. Um, I, I'll give a shout out to Edwin who introduced me to a new, uh, new techniques for doing some management teams that I've added to that because it just it seems like an easy, simple way to. Background checks on on executives. So you know, I, I think we're we're trying to get better all the time. Um, but so there are a number of inputs. Some are qualitative and, and some are quantitative. And one of the things I tell my students is that good investing is marrying the qualitative and the quantitative. Um, but the assessing people part is really hard, right? Mm. And so what you need is you need a lot of data points. And so if I were to step back and, 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 and give, a, give you a sense of the buckets that, that of things that capital allocation, compensation incentives, board structure and composition, 
tracking management objectives, which is basically like what has management said about the company, margins, returns, uh, growth, whatever, you know, how is that trended relative to their, their projections, mm -hmm. stock performance, tenure and personnel, which is like, you know, how, you know, have they been turning over the CFO every two years? Right. How long has the CEO been there? Like that, that kind of, and cultural stuff is, is kind of embedded in there. Their transactions, you know, which we've, you know, hopefully we'll get to talk more about. Um, other, and there's an other section, other references, such as kind of like Indeed and Glassdoor reviews, getting to the cultural side, like what, what can you, what can you learn outside of what the company tells you about their culture? And then we have a long list of red flags, um, that we pay attention to. So th those are the broader buckets. Um, and our process involves trying to understand the specific items within those broader categories and weighing in on whether or not we think they are neutral positive or negative as it relates to the specific company. So right. in other words, you go through the checklist one by one and record your thought. Um, and what, what I like about the spreadsheet is it's dynamic so that you can update as time passes, right? It's not just, it's not the static thing. Like I can, I can, you know, I can see that, you know, in March of 2020, this is what I thought about these things. And in a relook at it and, and do the same analysis two years later, you know, has that changed at all? Um, and, 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 and as new data points come through, have, has, have your, has your perception changed? Mm -hmm. Um, so in terms of how it's evolved, as I said, you know, I, I'm updating it frequently, you know, both, you know, in terms of as new data points in, but also to, if, if there's any new processes or techniques I can use, because I think as an investment process in general, it should be constantly evolving and improving. Right. And, and the philosophy and the bedrock are going to stay the same, but your process, you know, should be just like any company you want. You want continuous improvement, right? Any investment you make, you, they should have some continuous improvement initiative. So um, you know, I learned from Edwin the value of the, the SEC full text search on an executive. I started incorporating that into my process. So those are the changes that happen on the nuances. Um, you know, I, I think there are are ways that it can be improved, um, a lot of which are <laughs> not going to happen, right? So what, what, I, what would I really like? I would really love for all of our companies to allow us to observe all of the board meetings and then to sit in the company's lunchroom for a week. I, I bet you I could, I would really have a good sense of the culture and the management of the board if I could do that. Obviously, we can't do that. Right. Yeah. And so what what can we do? Um, one, we can apply a consistent process across all companies so that we are evaluating the same, you know, the same data points and, and, and weighing in on the same data points um, for each company. The other thing we can do is we can find new tools um, to help us validate what management's telling us. And the rest, you know, honestly, I think is pattern recognition. So what you're doing when you're performing these analyses and then recording them in real time and then over time is building intellectual capital at the firm. Right. And so the goal is to better recognize and predict who you think will be good partners and who you think will be awful partners. Um, and I, I'll just point out again that the majority of the management analysis, so I'm not, yeah, sorry, I should say this, the, the majority of the management analysis is focused on outliers either things that are really exceptional or very concerning. So, so as you're going through that checklist, most of the things are neutral, right? Like compensation, 
you know, unless it's egregious, yeah. right? It's probably a neutral. Um, management tenure, right? Unless they've have 10, 10 CFOs in the last seven years, it's probably a neutral. So what you're looking for is things that stand out. And what you're trying to avoid is investing when you see a lot of red flags. And then on the other hand, you want to lean in when you see a lot of positive aspects. Getting back to your original question, like about, you know, it, does it make it easier to invest once you've underwritten a management team? Absolutely, right? Because you're just, you don't have to, you don't have to, to worry that, yes, I like the business and the valuation is great, but man, I don't trust this management team, right? Because the people are really important. And, and again, I tell my students is like, nothing is more important. I mean, the business is really important, but if someone's going to be in the CEO seat for 10 years, that person's going to allocate enormous an enormous amount of the market cap or enterprise value. Um, yeah. And the way they do that and the integrity that they have and the, the North star that they have in terms of capital allocation is going to be really important. Right. And so, you know, getting to the point of this takes a lot of work, you're going to be wrong a fair amount of time. Um, but the way you mitigate mistakes is when you see outliers, when you see negative things that stand out, you you just you're more prone to pass. Just say you know what M maybe this is a good management team. Maybe it's not. Maybe we can trust it. We can't. But we're either going to pass for now, or we see so many red flags that that um, we're just gonna we're just gonna throw this in the in the not investable bin, because you know so much of successful investing is about about avoiding mistakes, right? Yeah. So if I can just find a group of companies for which the management team's not stealing from us, you know, as we joke, they're stealing for us. Um, the business is getting more valuable every day and the valuation is reasonable. I like my chances yep. of being able to perform, right? It's those big mistakes, those big drawdowns where you were wrong about the business or you're wrong about the management. That's what impacts your returns and, you know, you know, makes you look like a mediocre investor versus a good investor. Mm -hmm. um, and so even if your process was good, um, if you identify things that are, you know, negative outliers on the management scorecard and then you ignore them, Right then, you know, then then you're not doing you're you're not doing your investors a service. I assume over time this assess this management framework, uh, this management assessment framework has evolved in numerous ways. But two ways in particular that I'm interested in are both on kind of the input and the output side. So the input being um, like things that you thought mattered a lot uh, that might have been either like red flags or things that you were looking for that today, looking back, actually don't matter. And this idea of almost like trimming the fat in your management assessment framework to get to what matters most, most quickly. And so that's kind of the first part. And then, and then, and then the second part is um, things that you didn't think mattered a lot. Now you realize uh, are actually very important. And so if we can think about this kind of as a hierarchy, like the stuff that was at the top now is at the bottom and maybe you should just discard versus the stuff at the bottom when you started, that's now approaching the top five of importance. Yeah, I don't know if it's that dramatic. So I'll start okay. saying that. Like, I don't, I don't think there was something that I told was like, oh, this doesn't matter now. It really matters, or, or vice versa. But I will say something that we've emphasized much less is, is insider transactions. Um, and I'm happy to talk about this in more depth. But it's just, you know, over the last, you know, basically since Coast Re started in, in 2011, but especially over the last five years, all we've seen basically, aside from like a brief reprieve in in, in early 2020, is just unabated insider selling, right? So I think a lot of the signal there has been lost. Um, and so um, I don't, 
I don't, I don't put a lot. I mean, I, I, I don't put a lot of faith in insider transactions. Now, insider ownership remains really important to me. But you know, what, what, what people are doing with their shares on a day-to-day basis, or whether they have a 10B5 plan, or whether they periodically do open market sales of the stock, like I, I think that is is much less important to me than I w- than I maybe would have thought. Um, and I, I think what it's not that this wasn't important because it always has been, but it's been really, really just drilled into me is having that capital allocation North Star, right? Have some overarching, um, you know, for lack of a better word, North Star that 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 gives you that 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 gives you the strategy behind your investment. And so I would prefer that to be some kind of return on capital hurdle, right? That is that that can be different for M and A versus um, internal um, internal initiatives versus you know you know what, what whatever wherever else you can put you know relative relative to buybacks or dividend, but yep. just some kind of internal return metric that you would expect given the riskiness of the of, of where you're putting capital. I just think not enough people explicitly state that um we see too many what i would quote call like quote unquote strategic um acquisitions that you know may fit some strategic value but the valuation is just like impossible to underwrite Mm -hmm. and so as a result i think unless you hit just an absolute home run you know the returns are impossible to underwrite so i think for me um as i was assessing people right uh, like obviously culture is really important, but man, is it hard to determine whether a company has a good culture or not, right? Again, you want to sit in the lunchroom and then you can't really do that. So I, I have a new appreciation for culture, but it still hasn't become any easier for me to, to really, to really, you know, opine on whether that's a positive or negative. But the one thing that you can look at is capital allocation history. And you can see how the company's done. How have they, how have they, how have they achieved their synergy targets? Have they made acquisitions that they were really bullying up two years ago? And now they don't even talk about, right? Like just go back and look at the history and see, you know, are they just flailing from acquisition to acquisition, or is there some consistent strategy with a return on capital hurdle that is driving everything? Um, and so, you know, some people it doesn't have to be so, you know, regimented and specific and routinized that like you you lose. It's just a it's just a formula. It can it, you obviously. An acquisition is not just a, a a return on capital hurdle. It is people. It's integration. It's in markets, right? There's a lot of quality stuff, but still having that umbrella framework, I think, and articulating it to your shareholders in some way that they can that they can understand what you're doing, become more of a focus of mine. Mm-hmm. The insider transaction thing is nice because it was actually going to be one of my next questions. So it's a so it's a great segue. I see this as more of a signal on Twitter than like almost any other place, right? You basically send out a bull pitch and within minutes, you can almost guarantee someone will reply, oh, but what about so-and-so who's been selling X amount of stock per month? Like Carvana is a great example. And maybe Carvana has a host of other problems with it. But one of the, one of the big red flags and air quotes that people always go to is like, oh, well, Ernie Garcia and like, you know, they're just selling stock or, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of other ones like, you know, Zuckerberg is 
selling stock and he pretty much sells stock all the time. And it's like, are you going to use that as an indicator? And like, you know, you, you, you kind of have to be honest with yourself. Like if you're going to use it as a, as a, as a bear thesis for one, you can't really, you know, kind of accept it on your other side. If you're, if you're, yeah, you can't ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I would say um, that especially insider selling is mostly noise with very liminal signal in most cases. And that's especially true when people have 10 B five plans where they're selling consistently every time there's an open window. And a 10 B five plan just, just for those that don't know is, is what? It, it's just, it's a way for executives to sell. So there's an open market sale where they, where I have, let's say I own 10% of the company and whatever, I'm going to sell 1% in the open market after, you know, when my window's open, I'm making, I, I you know, I basically put a trade in actively as opposed to I have a plan that says that every open window I'm going to sell 20,000 shares right so it's a consistent sell down mechanism um, I think you can get around some blackout windows using 10b5 plans but it's really just a I I am selling every opportunity the same amount and you know irrespective of the stock price I'm just going to sell right um, and so I I you know there's so many of those out there that like it kind of distorts the I think the value of a of of, of like insider sells broadly. Um, I would argue these days there's a lot more signals in buys than in sells because people sell for all kinds of reasons. Estate planning, you're going through a divorce, proper risk management. I'll go to Ernie Garcia. Like, it, didn't Carvan have like a fifty billion dollar valuation? I would have been selling that too. Right. And yeah. even if I thought the company was going to do great, right. From a risk management perspective, it is a huge percentage of your net worth. And maybe, maybe it is totally logical from a you know family planning situation to sell some stock. And so I, I wouldn't, you know, I, it's, it's not just because the execs think this thing go down, right. There's just a lot of other reasons people sell. On the other hand, I think you can feel somewhat comfortable that if someone's buying the stock, they can believe it's under, they believe it's undervalued. Now, I mean, we've, I've done hundreds of management meetings in my career and you, and I, I probably can only come up with a handful of situations in which I met a CEO who didn't think his or her stock was underappreciated in some way, right? Every once in a while, someone will be like, I don't know what people are seeing in our stock. <laughs> and those, but those, you know, that's probably happened twice in, in, in 11 years, right? And those are the, um, and so everyone thinks, Huh? Those, those those are the honest management teams. When yes, you, when yes. your stock's so, trading and, and, and at so twenty times for me, and... for me, I'm like, that's someone I would like to invest with when yeah. I see him or her buying shares, right? Like that's more that's a signal versus noise, right? Someone who's and that's very Henry Singleton esque, right? If you read right. the the um, Outsiders book, right? Like yeah. someone who understood you know where their stock stood on an intrinsic value basis and would issue stock or sell stock when, when, when it was expensive and they would, um, you know, and, and use it as currency for deals and then they would buy stock when it wasn't right. And so that's, that's really what you want. Um, but you, you have to remember is like these people without question have information that we do not have, but they're still human and they're still prone to buying at the top and selling at the bottom, mm-hmm. right? Just cause you're a CEO, it doesn't mean you're immune to behavioral biases. You know, and in fact, I think you could argue that having, um, you know, being the CEO may lead to more irrational exuberance because of how close you are to the company, you know, its people and its businesses. So, you know, I, I think 
you know, the, the way I would look at this is, is this way, like it, the, very little about insider transactions are either deal makers or deal breakers, right? You know, I, I, I see insider selling in one of our companies, like, is it, is it one person selling? Is it 10 people selling? How much of their stock are they selling? Like there's, there's additional questions you should ask. Right. Um, and, and I look at it like, I can, I can look at the intrinsic value just like they can. Maybe, maybe they're seeing exactly what I am. This, the stock's kind of gotten fully valued, right? right? Does that mean I'm selling it? Absolutely not. Because, you know, plenty of times true compounders were fully valued and then continued to compound, right? And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to be mechanistically selling and I don't want to be mechanistically, um, you know, getting bearish because insiders are selling. But I do think the, the, the way I would look at um, when you're looking at new ideas, right? It should be, you know, insider buying can be something that, that draws you to it. And insider selling can be kind of a, you know, kind of a, all right, so what's going on question, right? Like, and it's not a, but it shouldn't, I don't think it should be, I, I really, uh, given, given how prevalent 10B5 plans are and how prevalent it is, you know, especially for technology CEOs, just because consistently selling stocks, I just, I see it as, I see it as a component of an investment analysis, but you know, there's so many more things that are more important to, you know, over the long run to making money. When would insider selling make you nervous? Um, so it's really, so uh, let me just give it to you. So start off with who, who matters and nothing against, you know, a VP of operations that sells every, you know, whatever, pretty consistently. But if the chairman, CEO and CFO are selling, you know, Maybe that's an unfair bias, but that that raises an eye a little bit to me. So someone senior, someone who can see the whole picture, not just like this is my division, right. and you know maybe I don't know what's going on other seven segments as well. Right, someone who sees the whole picture selling, that's probably you know, I think that's probably an eyebrow raiser. It's not yep. and not a, not a deal breaker or a deal maker, but you know, but but something something to think about. Um, I think clustering. Either buying or selling is important. So if you're seeing a bunch of people open market sales at this or open market buys at the same time, I think that I think those are are, are slightly more compelling. Um, and then you have to think of how much of their stock they're selling or at what percentage of their net worth does it make up. So you know if I sold if I saw John Malone you know buying a million dollars of stock in one of his businesses. Like it doesn't mean much. He's a billionaire, right? But if you bought twenty million, that would say something to me. And on the flip side, you know, if I'm seeing, you know, some, some, you know, if I'm seeing the Carvana CEO selling five hundred million dollars worth of stock, like there's a little more signal to that in yeah. that I think than 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 selling like a very small percentage of, of his net worth. Yeah, it's um, like a magnitude effect, basically. Like you yes. have to kind of step back and say, like, is this is like, does this matter in the grand scheme of things? And does it move? Yeah, and, and the other magnitude aspect is how much of their stake, right? Yeah. I mean, if you own a billion dollars worth of stock and you're selling twenty million, not that much. If you own a hundred million in stock and you're selling twenty million, that starts to yeah. say more. So it's so, and I, I tell my students this all the time: investing is nothing but nuance, right? There are no black or whites. Anyone who tells you there's black or whites are invest, investing is, is 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 like not looking at it to, in in reality, right? These are these aren't stocks. These are these are these aren't pieces of paper traded on exchange. They are active businesses run by people who have emotions and jobs and lives and families, 
right? And you know, it's it's very difficult to just put to, to invest very formulaically because the nuance is what matters. And so I think you can discern signal from noise in certain situations with insider transactions, but you have to kind of ask who, how much, um, and you know, how many people are doing it to, to really get a sense of like, okay, maybe there's something here. Let's shift to capital allocation, which is going to be kind of on the tail end of our of our discussion here. But um, I think you've mentioned this just in the podcast and maybe in other publications, but capital allocation is kind of the golden goose of, of management's ability, right? And if, if, if they're good capital allocators, all else equal, they're probably good enough to run the business for a very long time. And if you want to put on kind of this management assessment framework lens again, and 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 run us through, in your mind and in Co Street's mind, like what what separates great capital allocation from just average and maybe maybe even poor, and then give us give us maybe a recent example of what great capital allocation looks like. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, so let me let me start backwards. Your question. Let's start a recent example that I, that I'd like to highlight, and then I want to talk about the traits that you know with that 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 are kind of exemplified by by the example mm-hmm. I'm going to discuss. So um, Rexnord, which was ticker RXN, used to be the ticker, is a company we own, and I met the CEO of Todd Adams a few years ago, and I thought he was an excellent company builder. It was one of those meetings where you're like, yeah, this is one of the guys I'd like to back. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's always love at first sight and that you know, and obviously we talked about how you can be biased and, and, and but it just, it felt like somebody who we could, we could put money behind. Um, and so we own, we own the stock and last year they announced what's called a reverse Morris trust transaction um, with Regal Beloit, whereby Rex Nord would combine its process and motion control business with Regal. And then the, the Rex Nord Remain Co would be a, focused on water management and be renamed Zern Water Systems. I'm oh, sorry, Zern Water Solutions. Um, and so first, what I like about that is a reverse Morris Trust is a very tax efficient transaction. So as opposed to selling it for cash, having to pay, ta- pay taxes, the way it works is it's, it's more like a spin-off, right? Where you, it's kind of like a merge and a spin. So first off, as a shareholder, you're not recognizing taxes up front. You, and you're going to have a choice of, you know, owning both Zern and the new Regal Rex Nord or one or the other, but you don't have to recognize taxes. So first, someone who does a, a capital allocation decision that is very shareholder friendly and tax friendly, that is, that is, you know, an important. The other thing that was great about this deal is win-win transactions for both Regal and Rex Nord shareholder basis. So for Regal, the addition of Rex Nord's high margin PMC business immediately prove, improve the financial profile of Regal, of Regal and partially is due to synergies, but partially due to the high margins that segment transformed, right? Like, I mean, it go, went from kind of like a low to mid teens EBITDA margin company to, you know, kind of like, like high teens to low twenties EBITDA margin company, which is, which is kind of what separates really high quality industrial company from, you know, kind of middle of the pack. Um, and the other thing is that Todd and the team at Rexnord recognized that you know, quote unquote, water companies often trade at higher multiples than even some high margin industrial companies. And so, if you're a pure play water company, that would translate into a higher multiple than Rexnord traditionally got. And that's exactly what has happened. 
And then the other bit, that Zern, the, the Remain Co, would be ability to have the ability to focus their M&A dollars in the water space and have an expensive currency, getting back to Henry Sinton idea, uh, a stock that trades at high multiple to be able to use the currency if they wanted to issue stock in a large transaction, which over the last three months, um, Zern announced that they were buying um, LK, which is the leader in drinking water systems in an all stock deal using you know, a stock that was trading like 17, 18 times EBITDA. So um, we don't own Zern right now, but we do own our RX, by the way. I just want to be clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, and, and why? The reason was I just couldn't stomach the multiple the market was ascribing to Zern, despite the, the high margins, consistent growth, and the very attractive returns. Right. Um, and in fact, the stock has come down, and I'm just doing a lot of work on it now, like kind of getting back to exactly the same example Joey Levin, Ben Glicklich, Todd Adams. These are people I want to invest behind at the right valuation. So, you know, I, um, so, so there's an example, right? Like, so I just gave you a framework, uh, interesting transaction that most people don't do. Most deals are not reverse Morris trust. So obviously thoughtful way of handling it, an understanding of, you know, the business from a portfolio manager's perspective, right? Like don't right. be tied as a CEO, don't be tied to the business because the company's been in it for hundred years. Ask yourself a few questions. Is there a better owner? Is there a transaction that after tax that would be beneficial to shareholders? And is there a win-win transaction with another company so that my employees and my culture, you know, kind of find a good new home? And it just happens to be that both of these companies are, are located in Wisconsin, like an hour drive away from each other. So I think cultural fit was super strong as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, like that, portfolio manager mindset being like i have these businesses we have no sacred cows everything is for sale every day because if someone's willing to pay us a price for, by which you know we value for shareholders then i'm willing to part with it right so i love that perspective and so that's that's one of the you asked like one of the characteristics of the good capital allocators i think it's that another one is you know someone who understands and 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 this is kind of like whatever market jockey kind of talk but i do think you want a CEO and a management team that understands that there are some businesses that are loved by the market more than are others. And then you can be thoughtful um, about finding a way to highlight those businesses, whether that's a spinoff, whether that's a sale of the kind of lower margin, less attractive business to highlight the other business, like just understanding that, you know, there is a multiple arbitrage opportunity in certain situations. Um, you know, I guess another element in this case would be a leader who's willing to make a transformational deal, which is Zern buying LK less than a year after doing the RMT with Regal, right? That was a big, big transaction where you're basically carving out your, your largest business, selling it to somebody else, right? And then less than a year later, you're making, you know, you're, you're issuing like almost a third of your stock, you know, in another deal, right? Like, so Obviously, there's a lot of pitfalls associated with that, but someone who's willing to swing when you see that opportunity come, and I will say that the work I've done on LK is that it is one is like has one hell of a moat around its drinking station, drinking water business. Like there just aren't a lot of competitors or anyone who has like the kind of presence they have, um, you know. And so, and and then lastly, I think another what I would say is that you know Todd and his team recognized that they had a really good currency to make a deal. So when you're trading at 17 times and you make a deal that is optically at 14 times before synergies, 9.8 times after synergies, that's a really a creative deal. 
right, for shareholders. So, um, you know, that, that, that multiple arbitrage thing, I think it is, is helpful, especially when you can deals. And then I think just in general, you know, what are the, the, a very important thing among capital allocators is someone who's looking out five to 10 years and not to next quarter, right? Very hard to make capital allocation decisions that are not going to pay off in the next, you know, six to 12 months. If you're, you know, if, if you're focused on what the stock price is today and what it's going to be next quarter. And that long-term thinking has been highlighted again and again in the podcast. Um, you know, like the CEOs who I thought were had, you know, had the most compelling North Star and, and, and most, you know, the most, you know, kind of like, like Cove Street-esque capital allocation framework, right? That long-term nature, willingness to suffer short-term pain for long-term gain, you know, that, you know, I, I think it, it'd be hard for me to imagine that any good capital allocator doesn't have that framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I guess the one risk, right, if there, if there is any is, does that capital allocator use long-termism as a guise to underperform in the, in, in the shorter term? Because just kind of bringing it back to like an investor's mindset, this is something that I wrestle with a bunch. It's like, oh, you can have a shitty investment idea and slap on the quote like, oh, it's not working now, but this is a three to five year take. And then all of a sudden like magic, it's like poof. All your troubles are gone because it doesn't matter what happened in the first quarter, two quarters, or year. If you're looking out three to five years, it's like there's there's there, there's almost so much uh, bad that other people are willing to tolerate about an idea before they're like, you know what? Maybe he just was wrong. So there's always a tension between growth and profitability, and striking that balance is hard. Yeah. Right. It's not in, 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 in different businesses, investors are, and industries, investors are willing to accept different levels of that. Clearly in the technology startup space, you know, it makes sense to be investing more than, than, you know, than you're generating in revenue and suffering losses because there's a long-term prospect. Mm-hmm. But then for an investor like myself, or someone who's focused on cash flows is like, I don't, you know, how am I going to know when that's going to turn around? And then culturally, you know, I think Orlando Bravo said it on, on, on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best podcast. Like, it's very difficult to go from a, you know, high gross margin, negative EBITDA slash operating margin business to boom, we're 25% EBITDA margins overnight, right? Culturally, you've been spending like drunken sailors and all of a sudden you're just going to like tighten up, right? And I, just, I think obviously if you scale fast enough, it's just inevitable, but, you know, that's not so easy. So I think culturally, it, it, it's, an, it's an important thing to think about as well. It's not just like, it's not just about this is the math on my spreadsheet. If we can grow X percent, like, you know, obviously we're going to scale and have X percent margins. Like, it's not that easy. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in a way that I'm, I'm, anything that doesn't generate near, you know, near term operating profit is not something that's likely to be on my screen. Right. Um, it's just I, I I put that for me in the too hard bin. And and does that mean I miss all kinds of things? Absolutely. Right. right? I mean, you right. have to. Right. Because like, of course. And, that's, and look, that's that's you where it on the way up. Like, go ahead. You missed it on the way up, and guess what? You miss it on the way down as well. Yeah. And so that's why you know you know while, while the sky is falling for a lot of investors, we're kind of just you know looking at the carnage, you know, driving by because we didn't own any of the stuff that's getting yeah. smacked. Right. Well, and everybody and everybody also saw what Bezos did, which is, you know, a one in a billion operator that said, Hey, we're going to burn a lot of money for a lot of years. And if you're cool with that, buy our stock. Like if you're not cool with that, don't buy our stock. And then 
every you know CFO or founder that was trying to justify burning tons of money, they were like, oh, well, if Bezos can do it, I can do it. And so maybe maybe my shareholder base will tolerate as well. And it's it's just not, it's a lot harder to develop that shareholder base than I think a lot of operators assume. I, I need to address that because I mean, it's a great point. And you're absolutely right that people use Amazon as the example for anything, any business line, right? And there's so much. So, so first, there's a, let's just go through the biases involved. There's a fair amount of survivorship bias, right? Yep. So Amazon just happens to have worked and it's fabulously well, taking nothing against away, nothing away from Amazon. But there were probably 20 other companies that tried a very similar thing and, and, and or maybe hundreds of other companies that tried a similar thing and weren't as successful, right? So there's, there's one, there's survivorship bias. And then there's a bunch of hindsight bias, right? There were plenty of times within Amazon's history where, where it was not so clear that, that it was gonna it was gonna work and that the market would tolerate it, right? Amazon's had a number of very large drawdowns over that time, right? And so the idea that that because Bezos did it um, and you know people some people held on for a long time that other shareholder bases would be willing to do that, you know, it's just it's just to me like it's that's just that's just it's just crazy. Now, it, it, do I fundamentally believe? that businesses should be investing heavily in, in internally in order, especially if they have growing t- total adjustable markets, especially if they have you know, secular tailwinds, absolutely 100%. But for, for me, it's a balance, right? And so if, if I, I, what I don't want, I think, and this is something that I've learned, it's like, I don't really want a high cash flowing business that has secular questions. I think the hit rate of being of being able to get it right that you know what the growth rate is not negative two to negative five it's actually one to two percent and the stock is so cheap you make money if it's one to two percent i've seen personally my hit rate for that is very low and so i've painfully learned that um you know internal business momentum as i said earlier like like secular tailwinds are a must right and um you know especially if you're, you're investing in in um you know, in, in a concentrated portfolio, why wouldn't that be a, a, a must in your portfolio? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you, you know, I, I, I'm, I am more tolerant now of, you know, short-term profitability, you know, detractions for long-term gain and, you know, not focus too much on, you know, the optical trailing margins and right, really thinking about what it means that, you know, what, what, the, what the end market growth looks like and what it means for this business to scale into that. So I'm more tolerant of it, but still like I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler for, for cash flows and, you know, free, like excluding SBC, excluding stock-based compensation, right? If, if, if 100% of your cash flow add back is stock-based comp, to me, that's not really free cash flow. Um, but, to, but if, I'm, I'm a stickler for some level of free cash flow, consistent, if not rising margins. And, you know, hopefully within that, the management team is aggressively reinvesting in their business because they're, rel- because they're scaling and they're realizing operational improvements that allow them to invest in the business while maintaining margins to some degree. Well, and the other thing too, is the, the flexibility of an operator to invest for the long term is also just a function of the willingness for the market to accept that kind of strategy. And I think we're seeing that now where I, with, with, within literally weeks, I think you've gone from growth at any cost to survivability at any cost. 
And that switch was massive and it was so quick. And so on, on you wake up one month and the market loves that you're reinvesting for the long term. It doesn't care if you're generating losses today because your business model is going to be structurally advantaged and competitively advantaged in your, you know, five, six, seven, nine, ten. And then you wake up three months later and that strategy, which one could argue is still just as strong, still just as viable, still just as, um, you know, justifiable in the sense of what, what they're trying to do from a long-term perspective, all of a sudden the market doesn't care. And all of a sudden investors don't care. And that's a really tough game to play because it's, 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 it's such this massive headwind and it, and it, and it makes what Bezos did even more impressive, right? Because there's, there's, there's cycles to that. And the fact that he was able to say, I don't care what the market thinks we need to prioritize right now, because you've seen a lot of management teams that are like, we're going to prioritize free cash flow, right? Like Uber's Uber's a perfect example. They're like, we're going to prioritize free cash flow. And I wonder if you can make the argument that like long-term, maybe that's not a good decision. Like maybe you need to lean in. Like if you're very structurally advantaged and you really think that you can gain like in a winner take most market, maybe it's not the optimal decision to focus on free cash flow, but yet you have to because of sentiment. And I know like I took kind of a lot of time in saying that, but it just it just makes me that much more impressed that Bezos was able to do that over like two decades of time. Yeah, and I think that remains the outlier, right? I mean, I yeah. guess I mean Reed Hastings that I think did a pretty good job of that at, at Netflix as well. And so yeah, obviously they've created an enormous amount of value doing that. I I still think it gets back to to balance, yep. right? Um, an organization has to walk that tightrope between investing too much and too little and somehow appeasing public shareholders in the meantime. And it's really, really hard. And so, you know, I think, I don't know what I would have done if I were one of those CEOs, right? The market, first of all, your VC investors, right? Probably lets you do it. And then you go public and your public market investors are encouraging you to invest. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 the light switch goes off and, and you have to generate free cash flow. Culturally, that's going to be really freaking hard. They're going to fire people. You know, they're going to, you know, all of their stock options are going to be way underwater. Who knows if they can retain people, right? Who knows if the growth will continue in that, in that interim period. It's going to be a painful transition to, 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 um, for a lot of these businesses. And I certainly don't envy their position because you're absolutely right, right? That there's some of these businesses and, that, and this is what we're looking for, right? High gross margin business that um, has secular tailwinds, that has a good management team that's you know, done a really nice job building the business, but now all of a sudden is, is just being crushed. Ho hopefully with kind of like a baby thrown out with the bathwater where you know, this is a business that can continue to reinvest at high, at high rates. And, and while the, the market is, is, is saying it can't, right? So it, it's... It's an impossible situation to go through as a management team. It'll be really interesting to see how these companies react and how they pivot, and, and how many of them are unsuccessful in that in that in that you know endeavor. Yeah. Um, and and we'll see. You know, I think if we'll look back in twenty years, you know, you know, twenty years hence, we'll look back and we'll see that there's probably some people who you know it was just you know it was just like the opportunity to buy Amazon when it was down ninety five percent during the tech bubble. Right. And there's an incredible buying opportunity. And then there'll be companies for which you never hear from. Yeah. Yep. We have almost done an hour and a half here and it's actually kind of flown by. Um, I've learned a ton and I wanted to save maybe one of the tougher, you know, I threw you a pretty tough question at the beginning 
And, um, you know, I think, I think to kind of wrap up here, I'm going to, I'm going to create this tough problem for you to solve. So let's, let's end with this thought exercise where you have the chance. Uh, I don't know if you play, you know, play video games or have played video games, but in a lot of sports franchises, whether it's Madden, NBA 2K, um, you can kind of create a player and set its attributes and stuff like that. And so let's do that for a business where you're creating a business and you have free range to pick your idea of the best business model, founder, CEO, board structure, compensation, insider ownership, capital allocation, industry, everything. And I think, you know, on one, on one hand, this is, this is pretty hard. And that's why I gave you the outline before we recorded, you know, <laughs> a day, a day before, because I, because I knew this would be challenging. But on the other hand, I think it's a great way to kind of encapsulate everything we've discussed and box it into this elegant presentation of how you guys think at Cove Street and, you know, what you guys are looking for basically as the pinnacle of, of, of investing success. So um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to walk through every, every single thing that yeah. you would want, I mean, I think it, I think it'd be fun. Happy to do that. And thanks for asking this thoughtful question. Um, so let's start with business model. Um, I don't really focus on technology. So I'm not going to give you the obvious software as a service business with 99% retention example. Obviously, that's a good business. And if you can scale it, it's really great. And blah, blah, yeah. blah. And you make a lot of money. I, I get all that, right? So fine. Let, let's, just, let's just put that aside and say, all right, what about a company that makes a physical product or a component? Right. So let's let's just talk about a manufacturer or someone, someone who's, you know, you know, who's not just creating something that lives in the cloud. Um, so let's start there. Yep. Um, so assuming you're doing that, I want I want a company that makes a product that is a small component within a full system and that makes up a small percentage of the customer's total cost. So if it's a mission critical small component of a larger system that's much more expensive to build, right? So if I raise my price 10%, it doesn't change anything about the economics of the process, but it's mission critical and small so that it, it, it's a requirement. Um, and so that would give me a fair amount of, of pricing power. Um, also, ideally you expect into your customer's production for years. Right. So, you know, kind of like an auto OEM will say, hey, I have I'm going to make the, the, the Mercedes CLA 250 in this model with these exact specifications over the next three to five years. And, and I'm going to spec in all the suppliers. Right. If, if you're spec in already, that allows you to plan for the future and understand how to manage your supply chain in order to, you know, to based on your customer's demands. And so you're, you already know, what, you, I mean, you don't know exactly what volume is gonna look like, but you kind of have a sense of like, you, you kind of have a range of volume for your customers. Um, and then I think you wanna be one of the only, a handful of companies in the world that has the technical capabilities and the scale to produce this small product consistently and with good gross margins. Mm -hmm. That is a business, you know, is that a, like a super sexy business that, you know, that like, you know, people talk about at the, you know, at the bar? No, what it is, is a mission critical, high margin, high return, low capital intensity um, company with a fair amount of, of um, you know, kind of uh, vision and, 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 and uh, what's, what word am I looking for? Kind of ability to understand what the, the demand and, and trends are going to look like. That sounds like a great business model to me. It's like a hidden champion. In terms model. Of this, 
Huh? It's like from the book Hidden Champions. I don't know if you've read that book, but that's basically you haven't read. Oh my gosh, dude. I have to. All right. I'm going to send it to you. When's your birthday? Uh, February. February. That's a long time away. I might send that to you before then. Yeah. (laughs) It's, 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 it's going to knowing you. Uh, and again, you know, the length I've known you is this podcast, but <laughs> knowing you, I think you're not going to be able to put that book down. I'm just, I'm, Great. I'm just going to say it, look it up. Um, and I'll, 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 I'll ship it out to you. Um, cause it's, Thank you. Thank it's, you. it's, it's, it's too good. It's too good of a book, but anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Um, in terms of the CEO and founder, you know, we own a few companies, um, that are still founder led, you know, uh, Clean Harbors um, is, and uh, Alan McKim, who I had on the podcast, has he, run this company for 40 years, founded it, run it for 40 years, right? Mark Dankberg, co-founder of ISAT, right? Still in the seat. They both own a lot of stock. I mean, that's, that's really, to me, the ideal, right? Um, so owner operator who owns a lot of stock, I mean, that basically guarantees that you have a degree of alignment with shareholders. So, you know, it's not... It's not a must within our investment process because, you know, who knows, this company was owned by private equity and now it's in public hands. Like, you know, companies go through different parts of their life cycle. But if ideally I, w- I want an Alan McKim or Mark Dankbert in charge because, you know, they've been running their companies for cl- like close to 40 years. Right. So that that I like um, board structure. I'll give you I'll give you my ideal uh, board structure. Um, so. So mostly independent board members, separate and chair, chairman and CEO is preferred, um, but at least have an independent director if they are not split. Um, I'm okay with Alan McKim being the chairman and CEO of, of, of Harbors because he founded the company in 1980, right? Like that, that's okay. Um, so, but, but for the most part, I think for, and obviously Buffett is, is, is in that position, but they're right. alone. And, but, you know, in most cases, if you're not Buffett or Malone, Right. I think a split chairman and CEO makes a lot of sense. Um, compensation, not egregious, right? Either that's board comp. I mean, people who make $500,000 a year, right? To sit in that seat is, is a little scary to me. What um, a job. Like, what a job oh, if you think. About please, it. please, just, just let me let me retire and be on four boards. And If there and, are any and, open board positions that want a podcast host slash writer investor, like, let me know. <laughs> please, please, please. Um, you know, I, I go back and forth a little bit on this one because like the really successful companies probably have had board members on there for 20 or 30 years and they've just like, and, and that's, you know, they, they've been along for that ride. But I do think that you'd like to see some new blood on the board, right? Just, I don't know that you want some, like an entire group of people who've been there for 20 years. Because right. I think you get, you would potentially like getting to like the innovator's dilemma or like the risk of getting disrupted. Like I, those I think it'd be really hard in a lot of cases for that group of people to have a dynamic mindset, especially as there were threats coming up. Mm-hmm. I do think having some diversity on the board is helpful. Um, you know, not just having 12 white males who are all 60 plus, right? You know, I'm not a DEI specialist, but I do think that probably having some someone with an uh, like with a not like a non you know U.S. white old male perspective would be helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, yearly elections versus a staggered board. Um, I, I, I just think we, we're just not in favor of staggered boards. Like, and, and, and even in, you know, even in good company, if the CEO owns 10 or 12% and, it, and this company has been enormously successful, 
it doesn't matter if you have annual elections, no one's going to kick the board members out, right? It's only yes. an option if things go wrong that an activist can come in and replace the board. Um, and the other thing that I'll, I'll, I'll say that like, um, you know, maybe people don't think about, but I like to see companies with a strategic committee, right? So there's the audit committee, there's the governance committee, there's a finance committee. I like a strategic committee that's tasked with constantly evaluating whether or not the portfolio changes, some portfolio changes should be made. So going back to that Rex Nord idea, you know, or, or, or where, with the Rex Nord idea where, you know, Todd Adams and his team recognized that a, a RMT with Regal would be, a, you know, a really good transaction. Like, you know, a lot of people aren't trying, trying to figure that out, right? So I like to see a strategic committee on the board because I do think it, it shows that there's like a, you know, someone, someone giving a fair amount of thought to the structure of the company. Mm-hmm. Compensation. Um, if you go through that um, that presentation I give to UCLA students, there's a lot in there in compensation. I'll be really brief about it because I think this is actually a lot more simple than people make it out to be. Short-term bonus focused on just what we talked about: a balance between growth and margins. So some margin threshold plus some maybe like revenue growth or something like that. So not all margin, not all growth, a balance. Long-term comp, I, always two buckets. You need, and it's something you asked me what, what's changed in, in the way I assess management. I used to look at time-based restricted stock negatively, but I now recognize that um, if you have only performance for stock and you hit a COVID environment or you, you know, it's, the, the performance stock is tied to total shareholder return and the stock is down, those shares are not going to invest. Yeah. Right. And so what that means is that pension value whatsoever. So again, getting to balance, I think it's, you know, obvious for me, uh, optimal would be 50, 50% SUs that are time-based that vest over three to four years that keeps people in their seat, even if the stock isn't performing, even if you hit a tough operational environment. And then the other half performance-based stock uh, focused on return on invested capital and maybe total shareholder, sorry, total shareholder return over three to four years. And then within that, you need to set challenging but achievable metrics and, and targets, right? So many companies I see have these like just piece of cake targets to hit. And of course, they're compensating management at 120% of their salary because as long as we grow GDP, as long as we grow revenue over GDP, you're going to invest. No. So that's that's like so like me ten years ago reading a proxy statement and re, me reading a proxy statement today. I now look at how how aggressive the targets were, right? Like if you're if you're like you know what obviously 19, 20, 21, everything's just been totally busted, right? Because yeah, of COVID. But but you know in a normal environment, if you're setting two percent top line growth and the end market's growing faster than that, that's not a hurdle to me. That that's like you like if you can't hit that, you shouldn't get anything. It's a red flag, um, if anything. Red flag. So uh, I think you know I think comp- people make compensation way too complicated. And look, I've never been in a boardroom, and so I'm sure that it's more nuanced than this. But I do think if you just start with that those, that framework for long term and short term comp, you're you're like 80 percent of the way there. Um, insider ownership, obviously, high insider ownership is preferred, but I think you know five percent or more, you know, by the CEO, founder, chairman, whoever the leaders are, I think five percent is a benchmark because if you're investing in a you know 10, 10 or 15 billion dollar company that's a lot of stock right like that person's right. pretty wealthy so you know again it's a magnitude thing um and you know I, so I, I would say I, like whenever I see 10 percent or more I get excited 
because um, I know the alignment is there, but even 5% is, is, a, is a doable number. Um, and then capital allocation. You know, I, I thought of a few things that are just kind of like, they kind of have to be there. And it's funny because I, you know, I, I'm talking, I, I, my example was Regal Rexnord and, and the trans, they, they did two, they've done two, you know, Rexnord basically done two transformational deals in the last year. So usually I would prefer a company to be very judicious with quote unquote transformational deals. Yeah. Right. The, you know, if you read any of the academic literature regarding MA, for the most part, the, um, the, uh, the value of the deal increases to the seller. I'm sorry, to the buyer. Sorry, it creates to the seller, not the buyer. Yeah. Right. So if you're, if you're making a ton of deals and a bunch of transformational deals, you're probably rewarding, you know, the, the, the seller's shares. Um, so I'm, you know, I like, I think they can be used well, can be very, very beneficial, but it's more like small bolt-ons or tuck-ins done more frequently versus the transformational deal. Um, again, getting back to North Star, stated return hurdles for deals, stated return hurdles for initial, sorry, um, internal uh, in, in initiatives. Just have some North Star, have some, some hurdle that you have to hit to put money to work. Um, and then I think in terms of capital allocation, right, like some kind of contrarianism is great. Right, paying a special dividend. Very few people do that. I like special dividends. You build up a lot of cash. There's nothing to do with it. Pay a special dividend. Or yep. you know, when everybody else has stopped buying back stock, we're going to buy back a lot of stock. Right, like some kind of contrarian aspect to it, not just going with the market. And then finally, you know, when it comes to M and A, like I, I think you need to look at their history of achieving synergy targets. Right, like if a company, I want to see a company that has just consistently integrated well, consistently acquired well, and consistently hit their targets. Um, and then lastly, you asked about industry, which again, you know, you, you asked about like how my, you know, maybe process has changed, but industry structure has something that has become something I focus way, way more on. What do you mean? I, by that? I, I think I didn't appreciate coming out of business school just how important industry structure is to the returns and margins of the companies that operate in there. So, um, I want a company that operates in a somewhat consolidated industry with solid but rational competitors. If that's not the case, like it's like two sides, right? So it's either super consolidated or super fragmented in yeah. a way that there's a long roll-up opportunity that's juiced by the fact that the small private companies trade at much lower multiples than do the larger public ones. So if you if the public comps trade at like you know whatever 10 to 12 times EBITDA and you can buy the privates for five to six times, that is enormous freedom over time, especially if you can get synergies on top of that. And then I want the industry to be growing. I mean, I've said it a number of times and, and, and I know it sounds like, yeah, duh, right? Of course you want growth, but obviously you pay for growth, right? And so getting to the business value people, right? You want you want a business that has the ability to grow that you're not paying excessively for. Yeah. Um, and so I've just, I've that, that question of, does this business secular growth in it? If the answer is maybe to no, I've just, I've learned the hard way to, to, that you probably should put that in the do not invest pile. Um, and so that would be, that would be the perfect company for me. And it's funny that I like, I was like, I think this describes not every element, but I think this describes a lot of the things we own. And, and, and getting back to the initial point I made is like, and, 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 and the book you reference is like, this isn't sexy in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. These are not hot consumer products. These are not, you know, change the world software products. These are often kind of boring industrial like businesses that have just have been around for hundreds of years. It's stuff or, you don't you know, even dozens see. of years. 
Like it's it's yeah. it's it's parts you don't even see. They are they yes. are um they're not even finished goods. They're raw materials in process. Yeah. Components. Yeah. Components, right? And I, I love businesses like that. I think those I think those are just hidden gems and they often generate a ton of cash flow. They're mature, but you know, obviously they benefit from like you know, global growth in some capacity. And if they're good, they can take market share on the way up as well. Yeah. And so that's that's the perfect company. And, and I'll be honest with you, these aside from like those true compounders, the you know, the 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 ropers of the world and the ones that like I just had this cult following, there are some businesses that like I, I think, and you know, it's clearly very biased because we have a bunch of them, but I feel like think I, I think really, you know, have a lot of these characteristics and they have been underappreciated. Mm-hmm. because they haven't fit the sexy box recently um and so knock on wood you know especially given what's going on in the in the in the sexy world um that maybe we could see some some mean reversion and people start to appreciate the quality of these businesses awesome i think that's a great way to end i mean i think i think it's perfect so i'm gonna send you hidden champions it's kind of a done deal at this point you need to read it awesome. um, thank you and i i can't wait to publish this i i learned a ton um i know other people are as well i'm also going to include the link uh to the idea brunch that you did with uh edwin that was fantastic by the way it kind of gave me the idea that i needed to get you on the on the on the podcast to talk shop so uh where can people go to find more about you uh whether it's yeah. on twitter whether it's with cove street give them the details yeah, um, I'm pretty out there, I would say, in terms of, of, uh, of, of being able to do diligence on me and my firm. So first, I'll, uh, you know, coastreetcapital.com. We're pretty active on our blog. So if you go to our thoughts section, you'll see my, like I just posted my quarterly letter today, um, an excerpt from my Q1 letter to our clients uh, today. So I'll post that. And then, then any, any podcast I do, either interviews like this one or the, pod, the Compounders podcast, I'll post there. Um, next place I'll send you is Twitter. So at Ben Claremont on Twitter, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not quite in the upper echelon of your, of your Twitter followers, um, but I'm, you know, slow, slow, but steady build. Um, and so, but, you know, I, t- I tweet pretty often and look, I'm not, I'm not commenting on, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not in, you know, I'm not innocence, right? Like I, I who comments on everything possible. Right. Uh, I don't know how he does it, by the way. I, I, I don't a, know. He's guy's a machine. I don't know how he does any actual work. Like that's like him, him and Thunderdome. I don't know how they get work done. I I don't think they do work. I think with kids, like I I don't, (laughs) unbelievable to me, unbelievable to me how well, you know, and, and how on point they both are. So look, I I don't bring that Twitter game. I'm not trying to bring that, bring that Twitter game. Like, you know, we've talked about a lot of things like, I'm like 99% of my time is focused on, you know, becoming a better investor. Right. And, and the podcast an aspect of that, but it is, you know, it's a sideshow relative to like, you know, running client money. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then the compounders, I think, you know, uh, you know, you can search for compounders podcast on Spire Apple or, or, or Stitcher. Uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a really fun experience. I've learned so much. Um, I think we're doing something slightly differently. I mean, in terms of just, there just aren't a lot of podcasts out there that are like investor-led discussions with 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 public company CEOs. You know, the pitch is that you know I let you be the fly on the wall for the, the kind of exact conversations I have with management teams. Yeah. And you know, for for people, you know, for either capital allocators, you know, who kind of sit in the you know institutional side, or you know, for people who are just learning about investing, um, or someone who's founding a company, I think it's it gives you unique insight to how these businesses are being built. So. Um, you know, I, I've, uh, I, you know, I recommend, you know, checking it out if you're, 
if you're interested in something just like a little bit different than the typical, like, you know, investor interviewing other investor podcasts, which, yeah. you know, you and Bobby and, and, and Bobby Craft and all those guys do so well. And I would, I would push back. You said that your, your podcast was kind of a side, a side show to your managing money. I actually think it's probably an integral part of what you do. I think it does make you a better investor. Um, the, the people that you interview, the reps you get, the pattern recognition, all of that, it doesn't show up obviously like on the day-to-day, but over the long term, no doubt that makes you a better investor. So I do think there's some virtuous, you know, flywheel effects there for you as a, as a content creator and as an investor. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I mean, I've sure felt it. I, I, I didn't mean to say sideshow. Maybe that was a little bit too harsh a term more. So like, you know, um, you know, the, the promotion of it and like tweeting it out and, you know, like oh, yeah. being that, like that side of it, the marketing side of it is a little bit of a sideshow, but no, this is absolutely core to what we do. It's like, it's, 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 and, and, and the, the, the goal is for me to get better at asking questions, interfacing with management, develop deeper relationships, and then develop that pattern recognition of, yeah. I've talked yeah. to a hundred different public CEOs, you know, at some point I'll hit that point, hopefully. And to me, that's like, th- then I can say like, God, I've seen this before, whether it's conscious or subconscious, right? You start to develop that pattern recognition. Right. The more conversations you have like that, I really think, um, you know, ho- you know, hopefully maybe it's not tomorrow, but over the next five or 10 years, that starts to make me, you know, an even more effective investor. Yep. And I have no doubt that it will. So Ben, this has been a tremendous conversation. Wish you the best of luck this year. Good luck with the, uh, the you know, Cope Street Capital. Good luck with the podcast. And uh, can't wait for you to let me know how you like Hidden Champions. Yes, will do. And thanks for having me. And thanks for your thoughtful questions. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.